Today's scripture reading is uh, from the book of Esther, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 17, which can be found on page 491 of your pew Bibles. That's the book of Esther, chapter 4, verses 1 to 17, on page 491. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her, and he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life but 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is the word of the Lord. I I don't think I need to tell you that we live in some fear-filled times. Fear, it seems to be almost the cultural air we breathe. It dominates so much 
of our cultural imagination. It fills our politics so that politicians use fear. They exploit fear to, for political gain. Fear is a bully in our culture that, that fills our mind with every form of anxiety and worry. Because, you know, you got to watch out when that housing bubble is going to burst or homegrown terror cells. You don't know where they might pop up or market downturns or global warming. We are led to worry about so much and we are also then led to demand deeper and greater levels of security that never deliver us from fear. And you see how that sets in in so many different ways. I mean, think of us here as a church in a place among people where Jesus has commanded to love your enemies. Fear can quickly set in and so we keep distant people who might be different from us. Fear causes us to replace trust with suspicion, which just fragments community. Think of how fear affects parenting. I'm a parent. I see it in my life. In the absence of any consensus about norms or standards for raising children, with experts pretty much divided on actually how you should raise kids, what parents are left with is safe parenting. Keep your kids safe. That's pretty much the the dominant thrust of so much parenting advice. Keep them safe. Safe practices. We think of what we want to prevent our kids from experiencing as opposed to what we want to actually encourage and develop in our children. Now, I know we want to keep our children protected because they're vulnerable and they're precious, but at some point, preoccupation with safety gets in the way of full living. And every one of us, I know, we can all provide watertight rationales for why our own fears, whatever that is, are justified and appropriate. But is it serving you well? How is it serving you? Who of us have ever said, my phobias have just put such a spring in my step? Or I'd really be a bad parent if not for my parenting anxieties that riddle my heart. Or thank God for my pessimism. I've been such a better person since I've really lost hope. (sighs) Have you ever met a deeply joyful, chronically worried or fearful person? Fear doesn't seem like it can coexist with joy. Do you ever see those two together? Can you be delighted and afraid? Can you be clear thinking and full of fear? Can you be confident and afraid? Can you be merciful and afraid? It's like they're polar opposites, which is why novelist Marilyn Robinson notes, fear is just not a Christian habit of mind. It's just not a Christian habit of mind. And that is why more than any other command throughout Scripture, the one, the constantly repeated command throughout Scripture is simple. Do not fear. Because fear will sink us faster than anything else. Fear disrupts our faith. It becomes the biggest obstacle to actually trusting and obeying God. Fear whispers into our ears that God is just not big enough for whatever it is you face, and that we're really not safe in his hands. And it causes us to distort the way we think about God. But think about the continued stream of biblical teaching about who God is. 
Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because you are with me. After his resurrection, Jesus told his disciples, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus Christ asserts himself as the abiding presence in all history, in all reality. Our faith reminds us that Jesus was in the beginning with God and that all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the truth of our Christian faith. But fear threatens that. Fear threatens our truest identity as God's children. And fear threatens our truest vocation, which is to trust and obey God. But I know, I, can, I, I hear the objections because I hear them in my own mind. Life is hard, right? There's a whole lot to be scared about. Plenty that's out of our control. Followers of Jesus, they die from cancer. They bury children. They get lost in addictions. They lose jobs and homes. But Jesus offers something more. He, he doesn't offer the absence of all those things. He offers the presence of something more that actually makes sense of all those things. Something bigger that, that relativizes our fears, that really right-sizes our fears and empowers us to live with courage, to risk. Because it is a hope that fills our imagination instead of fear. This story from Esther that we read is just a remarkable text you might remember from last week, if you were here, that in Esther, nowhere do you read or find the name of God. Nowhere do you find people praying to God. It is a God where it is a book where God seems utterly absent on the surface of things. You don't see God anywhere, which can sometimes sound like our lives, can't it? Don't we sometimes experience a week, a day, a month, a season like that? So here's Esther living in the center of this Persian empire, which is a powerful political empire. And it, it just crushed any opponent. It maximized fear as its greatest tool. And Esther lives at the center of that empire, and she lives at the epicenter of fear because she sees every day what that King Xerxes can do. Snaps his finger, someone's life is gone. And in that place, Esther has covered up her faith. And she lives a hidden life. Esther is a woman who has two names in this book of Esther. Hadassah, which is her Hebrew name, and then Esther, which is her Persian name. And throughout the book, it's this, she's had this constant identity crisis rooted in fear. Who is she? Is she a Hebrew? Is she a Persian? Is she one of God's people, or is she not one of God's people? Is her ultimate allegiance to Xerxes, her husband, the king, or is her ultimate allegiance to the king of kings? And throughout the early chapters, it's as if, until this point here in chapter 4, she's pretty duplicitous. She's got this dual identity going on. How many of us are like that? Sometimes Christian, sometimes not. Sometimes holy, sometimes spectacularly unholy. Sometimes living for God, sometimes hiding from God. Sometimes being generous, sometimes being pretty self-absorbed. 
Sometimes living for the glory of God. Sometimes living for your own convenience. We experience that conflicted identity too. But there comes a point where you can't do that anymore. There comes a point where you have to declare yourself. Which is what Esther faces. She's been pretty content to live this double life. But now she faces this crisis that she cannot avoid any longer. This character, Haman, some high-ranking official with this huge hate on for the Jewish people, has convinced King Xerxes that a genocide would really be a fine thing. He's got a bruised ego because of one man, Mordecai, and uh, he suggests a genocide, which the king, the clown in this story, agrees to. And the entire Hebrew people here are in jeopardy. And Mordecai is just busted up. He tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth, mourns in this crisis. Now, a little, little pastoral aside here. I think, I think we can listen and learn from Mordecai in this. Because we don't grieve well, do we? We don't grieve well. I wonder if part of our struggle with how fear dominates our lives is connected with our inability to lament, to name before God what's wrong and what's broken in life. Look at how people in the Bible lament. They, when something bad happens, they let you know. They don't hide it. They, they change their clothes. They, they put ashes on their head. They go out in public. They cry and they wail. Think of the Psalms, the majority of the Psalms, right? They are songs and prayers that complain to God. They bring their grief and their sadness, but we don't do that well at all. Here's how we do it. How are you? Fine. And you? Good, good, right? He's having a marriage that's breaking down. Her doctor just told her that she has cancer, but we're all fine. Mordecai is not fine, and he's letting everyone know it, including Esther. And he tells Esther, I told you to hide your identity earlier. Don't do that. You have something to do. Go to the king. And Esther's, you know, she's rightfully frightened about the prospect. Um, because anyone who would come unannounced to the king, if he wasn't too happy, he'd, he'd just put that person to death. Now talk about instilling fear. If anyone approached the king and, you know, it was a bad day, he didn't like the interruption, that person would lose their head. So imagine the pressure for her to remain quiet, hidden. But Mordecai's pretty blunt. He says, don't suppose you won't be found out. And even if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jewish people are going to come, but you will perish. And somehow, from somewhere, Esther experiences a very dramatic change, a profound change. She decides to go to the king, even though it's against the law, now, we believe as Christians that laws are put in place by God that we need to honor. Romans 13 talks about that. But above that is God's unchanging, perfect, timeless law. And so when the government tells us to do things that violate God's law, we need to practice something called civil disobedience. And say yes to God's law and no to whatever wrongful law that might be of a human. Here's Esther doing just that. Genocide is a pretty unlawful thing according to God's law. And so she says, I will go to the king. And then, then there's this line, these amazing words. If I perish, I perish. 
In that moment, Esther is reborn. This, this is the pivot for the whole story right here. Prior to this, Esther is very passive. Other people are telling Esther exactly what to do. But now, and for the rest of the book, it is Esther directing things. It is Esther deciding, acting with wisdom, acting, taking on responsibility. If I perish, I perish. Who says that? Who says that? Those are not the words of indifference or apathy, right? That is not a nihilistic uh, whatever. Because a nihilistic person who does that doesn't really care enough to risk anything. Now, these are words of a resolve rooted in a profound, deep hope. Esther has, has grasped a larger purpose to her life. She has discovered a framework of faith in God in, that brings meaning to her life, in which her life and even her death make sense to her now. Esther is risking her life because she has now found a hope for her life. Now you wonder, how can you conclude that? Because God isn't mentioned anywhere. There's no mention of God here, right? But there's something that, that we as English readers of the text probably miss. But something that its first readers wouldn't have missed. To explain it, let, let me reference this. You know in online articles, whether it's a news piece or a blog, sometimes within that piece, someone will highlight another article that you should reference. Maybe it forms the background or gives you some helpful information that will help you understand that piece. And what they do is they embed it with a link, right? It's a hyperlink. It's that blue text that if you click on, boom, all of a sudden you're transported to another page and you can read whatever that is to help you understand whatever point or perspective the initial writer is doing. Um, it's called a hyperlink. The Bible has its own hyperlinks. Um, of course, it didn't have digital technologies at the time. But in verses 3 through 14, there are two references, two links to another biblical story that help interpret this story. And the Bible, the technology it uses is repetition. Precise repetition. It's a repeated identical phrase that is sort of like the blue text that you might find of a hyperlink. And in verse 3, we read this, that the Jewish people mourn with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Scholars call this a literary echo. It's the hyperlink of that day. And that was a reference to three words found in the prophecy of Joel, chapter 2, where we read this. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. NIV translates it's mourning. Hebrew calls it wailing. Same, precise, three Hebrew verbs. Fasting, weeping, and mourning. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And then, and then there's this last line of Joel's prophecy. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Who knows? Where have you heard that? Verse 14, Mordecai says, and who knows? 
that you have come to such a position for such a time as this. Who knows? Esther is turned back to the reality of God at work in the world. Her eyes are open to see that God is not hidden, that there is a God at work in what looks like a world absent of God. And she finds hope in the grace of God, this gracious, compassionate, slow to anger. Esther is reminded that there is a greater force at work in the world than evil. And it is God's gracious love and compassion. Those are the ruling forces in this world. And so she, in this moment, repents. She turns and her life has changed. And, and she turns and all of a sudden you can just see the trajectory change. She courageously sets out to act. Her faith takes form in action. She turns back to God. She finds hope and courage to live. How many of us need to do that today? How many of us, like Esther, have kept our Christian faith hidden away? Whether it's in friendships or in our workplaces. How many of us allowed fear to dominate our lives and our imaginations? How many of us have listened to that whisper of fear that says, God can't be trusted. He's not really big enough to take care of you. How many of us need to turn back to God today? To find in him the hope and meaning that will give your life purpose. Despite so much that is bruised and broken, so much that hurts and harms, Esther reminds us the Lord is at work in this world. He is working out his good, sovereign purposes. They are good because God is gracious and compassionate. His heart is so full of love for you and I, for this world. He offers you and this world the greatest hope, the deepest purpose. And, and so God gives us his son, Jesus Christ, a sign of his love for this broken world. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is, is the turning point of hope that offers us the courage to face our deepest fears, our doubts, our questions. So will you rend your hearts and turn to God today. He's the king of kings. He's the creator of all things. Look at Esther. She finds her truest identity in this God. And she comes alive. She boldly risks because she has found hope in God. She reminds me of another woman. Who also lived in, in an empire of fear. In the shadow of the Roman Empire, an angel appeared to Mary and overshadowed her with the glory of God and says, Mary, you're going to have a baby. It is God with you, the hope of the world. Now, that was an announcement that would complicate Mary's life unimaginably. She was hoping for a nice, quiet life with Joseph. They were engaged. Life looked good. And now she is filled with fear. And then comes that repeated command by the angel, do not fear. And Mary responds. And in Luke 1, reread Mary saying something very similar to Esther. Not, if I perish, I perish. But along the same lines, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. Whatever it is, whatever it brings, God, 
whatever you say, may it be. She risks everything because of the greater hope of God's kingdom that has gripped her heart and made sense of her life. Now, our call today is not to imitate Esther or Mary and their courageous faith. Because you know what? If I did that, if I set that up, it would just crush you. Because you would go out and you would try to be really courageous and not have fear, and it would crash and burn. We'll never live up to it. What we need instead is not the example of Esther and Mary. What we need is the hope that fueled their faith and courage. Esther saw something. She found hope and courage in the compassion and grace of God. We know this best in Jesus. Look to Jesus. If you see Jesus as your Savior, if you see him giving his life for your sake, it changes your identity. You know you are so valuable to him. You know your future is so secure. And that, that changes you. That gives you a security. There's your value. There's your worth. There's your hope. So how are you going to live today, tomorrow, this week? When you find your hope in God's sovereign purposes, all of a sudden you understand your life very differently. You understand your place in life is actually no mistake. That job you have, God has placed you there for such a time as this. Those relationships you're in, that circle of friends, that spouse, your family, God's hand at work. And who knows, but that God has positioned you there for such a time of this. So how will you risk? How will you live out this beautiful promise of the hope of God's kingdom in all those places? Because it's in those moments of risk-taking, of hope, of practicing hope, that greatness is found and experienced. One scholar that I read this past week, uh, Karen Jobes is her name, she noted that there are 14 references, 14 times in the book of Esther, where Esther is not just called Esther, but she's called Queen Esther. 13 of those happen after she said, if I perish, I perish. They come after she found her true identity in the hope of God. She becomes a person of greatness. She rises to that identity in God because of her repentance. Because she rend her heart, not her garments. Because she came to God and lived out now in humble, risky obedience. And you and I, too, will become people of greatness. Not because we pursue greatness in any way, but be, because we return to God in repentance. We turn to Jesus, the one who died, so we might live. One last thing. The reasons for living with fear... They'll never stop. Got to tell you that. That's the good news today, hey? <laughs> the, the reasons for you to have your heart filled with fear, they will never end. Every culture, every season will produce a whole long convincing list of why you should be very afraid. The vulnerability you experience, it'll never go away. So can you give up trying to make fear go away? Just give that up. Instead, find a deeper, richer hope that can displace fear, that can right-size those fears. 
locate your fears, your vulnerabilities within the larger story of God, which is the story of this profound hope at work. And watch it, watch it give you courage. Courage is never the absence of fear. Courage is acting in faith, in hope, in the face of fear. It is the presence of a hope that is greater than your fears. An acknowledgement that God is at work in this world. And so in Advent, we wait in hope. In between the first coming of Christ, waiting for him to come again. When he will wipe away every tear of fear, we wait. We live in hope. We live lives of risky obedience, trusting Jesus who is our hope, the joy of every longing heart. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the true freedom that comes through the hope of your kingdom, of your reality, of your purposes in this world. Father, many of us right here live in places like Esther did, places of of significant influence in our culture. And we have to confess, sometimes we lived hidden lives. You've positioned us in these places, God, and we pray that our hope in Jesus would now move us to practice risk, a risky obedience. For some of us today, God, that risk means giving our lives to you for the very first time, knowing Jesus Christ is our Savior for the first time. We've, we've maybe avoided that, God, because we feared that we might lose friends or we feared that we might lose influence at our job or we feared who knows what. But today, we want to take that risk and give you our lives and align our lives with your kingdom, with you, Jesus. For all those today, we pray that you would enter their hearts, Jesus. Fill them with your life and your hope. For an awful lot of the rest of us, we've known your hope, and yet we can still live huddled in fear. Please, God, would you bring your gospel into our hearts so that we might be like your son, who said he came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life for many. This is the life we seek to live, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.